This series gives you a direct line to the pinnacle traders. We're covering everything from when the odds are initially posted to looking at how the market might react. This is the opening line. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of the opening line with Pinnacle. The 2019 NFL season is about to get up and running and we're going to be doing weekly podcasts throughout the season to help you analyse the market, assess the matchups and at the end of it all make more informed betting decisions on the NFL this year. I'm your host Ben Cronin and I'm not going to be doing this on my own. I'll be joined by a man who's written a book to preview the season He's created his own NFL betting workbook. He's done articles, podcasts, and videos. He basically lives and breathes NFL betting. A very warm welcome to Adam Chernoff. Thanks for having me on and looking forward to the first of 44 podcasts. I believe we're doing, if my math is correct, with two per week this season. Um, Awfully nice intro, but looking forward to finally getting back to football. Yeah, it certainly sounds a lot like a lot when you say it like that. But for for those listening for awareness, we're going to be doing an early week episode to kind of dive into the the odds as soon as they're posted, and then follow that up later in the week with a another episode that kind of dives into the game into a little bit more detail. But let's, so let's not let's not sell that short just a little bit. Your enthusiasm is blowing me back in my chair, but I think people will love to be listening Sunday immediately after the price is open to hear. Thoughts from one of the most, if not the most, influential bookmaker in the last 20 years, Pinnacle Sports. So very excited to be on the inside of that and be able to deliver some value to the listener. There you go, Adam. You're doing my job for me. No, it's 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 teamwork. We got a lot of these to go and they're going to go quick. So we're working together. So, I mean, obviously the, the countdown has been on for a good few months now and there's, there's 16 games to get through. So I suggest we, we jump straight into it and let's let's look at the games. I'm ready. First up, we've got the, the Green Bay Packers at Chicago Bears. And from, a, from an odds perspective, we've seen Chicago move from minus four to minus three. The traders are obviously going to be expecting plenty more action over the next 24 hours. So it's going to be interesting to see if, if that number drops any further. The over-under has, has crept up ever so slightly from 46 to 46 and a half. And that seems fairly solid at the moment. So in terms of the game, what are you kind of thinking for this one? From the preview perspective, if you if you purchase the preview book, you're going to know my thoughts about the Green Bay Packers this season and my outlook for them. I think the important thing is to try always, if you're better, to separate your preseason thoughts from your week-by-week betting procedure or process. And that's sort of what I'm doing here with the Green Bay Packers. At four, it was probably an okay number to grab, but really I'm more interested in the Green Bay Packers from a long-term price and sort of, sort of get off from the perspective. But... Um, I'm getting a little bit sort of selfish in the analysis saying that I think that in this one, I'm hoping for the Chicago Bears to come out and really put a beating on the Green Bay Packers to drive that long-term value price of the Packers up. Uh, This is an enormous swing game for Green Bay uh, with their schedule. The next five or six games significantly easier than this opener. Uh, Once they get past this one, they could very easily rally up five to six wins. So from a selfish personal perspective, Um, I want the Bears to come out and drive that price up for the Packers to present some value in the next weeks to come. From this week perspective, um, certainly looking at the game, I think there's a lot of uncertainty for Chicago coming into this game. Uh, And what I mean by that is this is a rivalry, obviously, within the division where both teams have a ton of familiarity. But the Green Bay Packers are throwing something at Matt Nagy and the Chicago Bears they haven't seen before with the addition of Matt LaFleur into this head coach position for the Green Bay Packers. And that's really going to change this offensive dynamic around. 
a lot of the narrative about this dynamic has been negative towards the Packers. And I think that that's um, causing a bit of uh, questioning from a lot of betters in this to see why this price is going down. But um, from a price point perspective, I think that opener of four was certainly disrespecting the Green Bay Packers just a little bit too much. Now that it's corrected to three, I think that's a little more accurate. I don't think the Bears um, know what to expect from this Packers offense, and we're going to see a very different look of a Packers offense than we've seen in the years past. But more importantly, we're going to see a very different defensive approach as well. There is an abundance of speed uh, under Mike Pettin. He's added a couple key pieces in the offseason, and we're going to see a defense from the Green Bay Packers that can get after the quarterback better than they have in many years past. So going against the Chicago Bears, focusing on getting pressure on Mitchell Trubisky, who becomes a significantly uh, weaker passer when he's under pressure, especially when it's coming up the middle. Uh, I think the Packers match up really well against the Bears. But again, from a selfish perspective, I'm hoping that this sets up for a nice long-term buy on the Packers after this game. Uh, but for this game, I think the, the point spreads right on where it should be. Um, right now at three, I don't know if we're going to see too much more movement, um, from that between now and kickoff tomorrow evening. Uh, and then from the total perspective, we might see a jump up to 47, 47 and a half, uh, but sort of sitting in no man's land at 46 and a half, uh, certainly has some room to be influenced a little bit, uh, towards the over. So is it fair to say, I mean, the, the general perception might be, um, looking kind of Aaron Rodgers and the, an apparent drop off in offensive performance and the, the other side, the Bears, the the strength on defense, and you're actually turning that the other way and thinking, like, what do the the Bears have on offense against the Packers' defense? Yeah, I think the Packers' defense enters the season as one of the most underrated units in the NFC. And I think preseason, where they were doing a lot of experimenting and there were a lot of narratives coming out of Green Bay um, press conferences and interviews with coaches and the coordinators, uh, there were a lot of missed tackles, and I think that's leaving people very concerned about what's to come in the in the regular season, specifically starting this week one game in such a tough contest. But I, I really think that the market as a whole is undervaluing the Green Bay Packers defense. Um, from the Bears defensive side, as you mentioned, one of the better defensive units in the league, uh, performed to a unbelievable extent last year. And a lot of people will just sort of blindly point to regression when a team exceeds as high as they did in the turnover margin, had one of the highest turnover margins uh, in the last 10 years within the NFL. They also faced an easy schedule. People will just sort of blindly point to that regression. But I think under Chuck Pagano, as much as they're saying it's more of the same, uh, he tends to bring a lot more pressure than Vic Fangio does. So I think we're going to see a Bears defense that's a little bit more aggressive which could prove costly against Aaron Rodgers, who's great when he's facing that extra pass rusher uh, coming on the defense to open up some spots downfield. The next up, we've got the the Atlanta Falcons at Minnesota Vikings, and, and Minnesota opened as a four-and-a-half-point favorite, and they've dropped ever so slightly down to four, and the over-under was initially set at 47 and has, has moved up a point to, to 48. This one, kind of, it looks like an interesting matchup. The, the Falcons are an exciting team on offense. They seem to struggle on defense, and it's... Kind of the other side for the Vikings, they're solid on defense, but don't tend to offer much with the ball. So what are your thoughts on this? I think this number actually has the potential to take off uh, as we get closer to kickoff. I think there's going to be quite an appetite for the Minnesota Vikings at four. It's come down a little bit, and whether that was probably 
based off of the comments that came out of Mike Zimmer's mouth about this team wanting to run the football significantly more um, as analytics and data in the NFL have become more and more prominent over the last two to three seasons. It's proven that running the ball blindly just to be balanced in how you call plays is not nearly the most efficient way to win NFL games. In often cases, it leads to the opposite. Um, so in terms of the early money coming into the market, which is typically um, by people who highly value numbers and on-field statistics, you could definitely see sort of a sell based around when those comments from Zimmer came out. And that was something he sort of pushed throughout the offseason. But just looking at this as a matchup as a whole, you can't help but think that the Minnesota Vikings are maybe a tad underpriced, not necessarily suggesting a wager, but just from a per- perception perspective um, at four. Um, this defense returns 10 of their 11 starters from last year. There's a ton of continuity within this unit. It's one of the most difficult defenses to play, especially in Minnesota um, on that fast surface where they sort of step it up to a different level in terms of speed and ability to get to the quarterback. The Atlanta Falcons offensive line is an enormous liability, uh, starting two rookies on that offensive line as well in the first road start on the road at Minnesota, a team that loves to bring pressure. We saw in the preseason in that sort of dress rehearsal role when Matt Ryan did take the first half of snaps against the New York Jets, uh, who were shuffling in a lot of their backup players. Uh, he faced pressure 44% of his dropbacks in that game, which is extremely high. Uh, the offensive line was a massive liability last year. It looks like it's going to be the same this year. And I think that's sort of troublesome when you put them in this situation on the road to kick things off early in the year before they have much time to adjust. Um, Last year, there was a lot of appetite for the Minnesota Vikings from the betting market, just based on their playmakers at wide receiver. Falcons secondary has been a trouble spot for them, suffered a couple key injuries in the preseason and training camp as well. Um, So I think sitting at four, four and a half, depending where you look, uh, this price might end up closing a little bit higher as it, especially if it comes off four. Um, not much resistance between four and a half and six. So we'll see how this holds up. But I definitely think that we might see some more over money and then as well as some Vikings money between now and kickoff on Sunday. And then we've got the Philadelphia Eagles playing host to the Washington Redskins and the, the over-unders dropped a point on this one from 46.5 to 45.5 since it opened. And the Eagles have actually moved out half a point on the handicap from nine to nine and a half. So... Again, another intriguing matchup. I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, pretty big number for a divisional clash. But if you look at just the look-ahead numbers to kind of get a sense of what bookmakers are thinking that come out of Las Vegas, um, Washington made a couple key decisions down the stretch. They did a uh, down the stretch of preseason. A lot of their training camp and their practice was focused on having Colt McCoy as the starting quarterback. He suffered a big setback with his leg injury which turned the three-quarterback duel into a battle between Case Keenum and Dwayne Haskins. Haskins, obviously the rookie. Case Keenum has, for whatever reason, struggled to grasp the system under Jay Gruden. Um, So really, Washington's dealing with two quarterbacks they didn't anticipate starting until later in training camp and early in the preseason. And so they've sort of been forced into this role. Um, The issue with Trent Williams holding out makes their left tackle position. Anytime you lose your best offensive lineman on the roster, that's an enormous blow. Addition of Donald Penn to take that role, who's been on a downward trajectory, is pretty troublesome against the Philadelphia Eagles, especially when you consider that's the blind side of the quarterback and the Eagles love to bring pressure with their front four um, rushers. It's just, it's a, it's a tough matchup for them to deal with. And now you lose Josh Doxson 
And it's really Washington relying on two running backs out of the backfield who are both coming off injuries and Adrian Peterson, who's running out of time to play in the NFL. Their best passing option is probably Chris Thompson, who's being squeezed into the third running back role. So from from a Washington offense versus Eagles uh, defense perspective, this is a terrible matchup for the for the Redskins and probably one of the worst overall between two personnel groups on week one. The Redskins defense is their, in their secondary is the strong point of the defense, but Philadelphia comes into this game resting most of their starters throughout the preseason. Doug Peterson, brilliant at putting together a game plan. There's just so much depth on this Eagles roster that certainly against this Redskins defense, which is limited to Landon Collins um, as their main safety, has the ability to stretch this secondary pretty far um, and open up some some matchups uh, outside of just the one-on-one with Josh Norman. So the the point spread makes sense. The move makes sense. It's all validated. I don't know if I want to go laying 10 in the division. Uh, we'll, we'll probably see this total hang around uh, 45 and a half. Maybe uh, it ends up getting the 45 flat as sort of a key number there um, with six touchdowns and a field goal on that total as number you want to keep in mind, but not expecting too much more from this unless – some news comes out and this one balloons up further in favor of the Eagles. You mentioned question marks there over the the Redskins offense for this game in particular. I mean, if you look at last season, they were they're one of a few teams that didn't or failed to surpass 300 regular season points. So I guess long term as well, how much of a worry do you think that's going to be for them? Uh, it's an enormous worry for sure. Um, their main passing option, Jordan Reed, often injured. They're dealing with these quarterback issues. If this offensive line can't hold up, uh, chances are that Jay Gruden is going to be pushing his running backs to run into space where there's no space to run. Uh, So if you can't have the offensive line protecting your quarterback and you're dependent on two running backs who are aging and coming off of injuries, lacking a little bit of burst, um, it's not a good situation to be in. So not too much upside with this Redskins offense throughout the course of the season, especially not week one against the Philadelphia Eagles. So we've then got the Buffalo Bills travelling to the the New York Jets and the the market moves slightly on the Jets on this one. They opened as a three and a half point favourite but have have gone down um, to three. The over-under has moved from 38 and a half up to 41. Um, I mean, if the truth be told, these these aren't necessarily elite teams. They're average to poor teams. The the Bills are pretty good against the pass last season but they really let themselves down on offence and the Jets are, are pretty much in the middle on both sides of the ball. So... Do you think the market has got this one right? I think from a point spread, uh, point spread perspective, it makes uh, sense to see this one at three. Maybe three and a half is a little bit of a better number. Um, but, I, I mean, at that point, you're looking at a total of 41, a pretty low variance game. That half point matters just a little bit more than it would in a game with a significantly higher total. Um, I think this is probably going to be one of the least bet games um, for any bookmaker over the course of the week. There's just so many more appealing matchups to betters. Uh, you look at this AFC East divisional battle, it's just not going to draw a lot of attention. Um, one spot where there's sort of been a bit of a battle between influential betters has been on the total. Uh, this one, there was a very clear buy point at 39 and 40 to the over, and then that was quickly resisted at 41 and a half on the under. And it really puts together... Uh, your different viewpoints on how you look at both of these teams. I think there's a lot of upside in the Jets offense with Adam Gase stepping in as the new head coach. He brings a new system that benefits Sam Darnold very well. In the preseason, Darnold just looked like he had such uh, an increased command of the offense. His footwork was improved. Uh, His downfield passing was improved. He looked so much more in tune with his receivers as well. 
and his playmakers. So there's certainly upside with the Jets offense, the Bills offense as well under Brian Dabble uh, finished the season last year on a great trajectory. They, they made a change from a lot of big receivers. Um, I think the idea last year was to give Josh Allen a lot of really big targets. Um, so his, accuracy issues could potentially be reduced but it was quickly realized and you can see based on the moves that the bills made in the offseason that that didn't work out and what actually happened was they went for size but they didn't have speed and when you don't have speed you don't have space and so Allen was forcing a lot of throws into these tight windows and that was sort of killing his confidence this year it sort of cleaned out the roster they brought in a lot of speed guys that can generate a lot of space uh, that certainly was clicking in the offseason. They got rid of LaShawn McCoy, so that's going to add a little bit more creativity and just have a little less dependence on one guy with this offense and allow them to spread the ball out a little bit further. So from both offensive perspectives, this certainly benefits uh, the over in this case, and you can see a positive case for both teams being made. The Bills' defense is sort of the one big um, thing that you would look for if you're looking at betting the over. As you mentioned, very good against the pass very physical up front against the Jets offensive line, which has two people already on the starting uh, on the injury report, two starters already on the injury report. So that's um, something to keep an eye on and monitor throughout Wednesday, Thursday, Friday practices, see if they come through because if there's constantly pressure in Darnold's face, that's definitely going to affect the outcome of this game. Allow the Buffalo Bills to be a little bit more aggressive on the outside as well. The Jets have some injuries in the secondary. Um, They were beat up in training camp and preseason at the linebacker position, but now they're lacking a little bit of depth in the secondary. Um, While that benefits the over, also benefits the Bills a little bit, but it's not a game where I'd be looking to just blindly take the three with the Bills. I understand uh, the move down from a sort of an expensive three to a three flat, three even money on the Jets. Um, So maybe we'll see this one come off of the three, but I just don't think there's going to be enough interest within the market to really get this number moving. And looking at the Jets, if you look at their their record from last season, particularly in close games, they were kind of a little bit unlucky, some might say. So do you think they're a team that the the market could potentially be underestimating moving forward? I think that underestimation has already been realized a little bit within just looking at their season win total market, uh, which has been bet up pretty well. Um, from either seven or seven and a half. Both of those numbers have been fed up in the preseason uh, and the offseason as well. Uh, I think this is a team that it can probably play their way into competing for that sixth wild card spot. It's awfully tough to win the division when you have the New England Patriots who are priced as the favorite to win the Super Bowl um, in it to look at potentially winning the division. Uh, but when you're looking at teams sort of four, five, six, seven, eight in the AFC, Uh, There's a lot of room for those teams to shuffle around, and I think the Jets could potentially play their way in to that sixth playoff spot for sure. So on to the Baltimore Ravens at Miami Dolphins, and the market has been pretty heavy on the Ravens in this match. The initial handicap line has moved from four out to seven. Um, The over-under has also been bumped up by half a point from 37 to 37 and a half. And there's more money still coming in on the over, so we'll have to see what happens with that one. In terms of, of breaking down the game, what what are you thinking for this? Yeah, this is an absolute mess in Miami. And it's, yeah, it's kind of hard to imagine, but they're going to be starting this game with 13 new players that have been acquired within the last week on their roster. That's a quarter of their roster that didn't go through any training camp or any preseason with the team. So that's an enormous concern in and of, in of itself. I don't know if we've ever seen that situation before in a team with so much late turnover post-training camp, but, I mean, they ended up getting rid of Kenny Stills, Laramie Tunzel, Kiko Alonso on defense, who was a huge key. Um, 
this team is absolutely stripped down to the bare bones. It's clearly a rebuilding process for the future. Uh, I, I don't know if I necessarily buy into the tanking mentality. You have Brian Flores and the first-time coaching staff leading this team. Uh, he's a very direct, highly motivating coach. Um, so I don't know if this is a complete tank job where everyone's bought in like a lot of the narratives on television are talking about. But in terms of this matchup, you're looking at the worst offensive line that was rated as one of the worst offensive lines with superstar Laramie Tunzel. Now that Tunzel's gone, I mean, this offensive line is by far and away the worst in the NFL. And they're facing the Baltimore Ravens front, which is one of the best pass rushes in the NFL, one of the most athletic defenses overall. Uh, this is going to be an absolute turnstile uh, for the Baltimore Ravens uh, getting pressure on the quarterback. Ryan Fitzpatrick, is he the standing guy for a couple weeks before the bye, before they make the switch to Josh Rosen? There was back and forth in camp. Uh, it was very clear when either guy was without their unit for the most part. Fitzpatrick was playing with the ones. Rosen was playing and practicing with the two. Anytime that that switched, uh, the continuity that was lost became very apparent, and both guys struggled in practice, game, uh, every situation that they were put in. Now with so much turnover and so much uncertainty throughout the roster, that's very concerning for Miami. The only thing that keeps me away from being excited about Baltimore is obviously missing the price. If you if you didn't get three or four, uh, looking at seven, you really have to consider the game state that Baltimore puts themselves in, which is going to be accelerated a little bit further by Greg Roman. This is a team that keeps the ball on the ground with Roman coming in, who's one of the most run-heavy offensive minds in the NFL. You can probably expect what we saw in the last six games of, of 2018 to be accelerated even further this season. So when you're looking at laying seven on the road, that's an enormous price point to play to as it is. When you consider that the Ravens are going to do much of their work scoring, keeping the ball on the ground, shortening the game, reducing the variance within the game, which is illustrated by the lowest total on the board at 37 and a half, that number becomes magnified even more. So to come up with an angle on Baltimore, any sort of projection that gives them the edge, aside from just looking at all of the blatant matchups at this price point, very difficult to do. So it's certainly a stay away game for me and something that I would really encourage betters to look a little bit further into if they're thinking of backing Baltimore this week. And then we've got Kansas City Chiefs at the Jacksonville Jaguars, and we've actually seen the market move against Kansas here. A bit surprising, they were quite a big public team last year. Um, they were initially posted as a five-point favourite over the Jaguars, but have dropped down to three and a half. Um, the market's perception of the game also seems to be a been affected by that and the the over-under has dropped slightly from from 52.5 to 51.5. Now the bets are beginning to pile up again on the Chiefs so we might see the handicap creep up again. I'd I'd be interested to know if you think the market's right at the, at the moment or do you think there's going to be more movement? So this is probably the biggest game for, for the numbers guys of the week in terms of backing Jacksonville and I'll sort of explain why. When you're looking at the win total market it, it, those win totals that are bet up from May to the week one kickoffs, you're looking at a five and a half, six month span of money coming in and shaping the market. They're not very efficient in terms of predicting how many team, how many games the team will win or lose. But what they are very efficient in doing is representing the relationship between best and worst team in the NFL. So you can look at each rather than thinking about it as a prediction of how many teams, how many games a team will win. Think about it as what price point 
bookmakers and then the market shaping it are putting all of these teams in in relation to each other and from this perspective it's really easy because we can look at jacksonville price to eight a little bit weighted to the over and look at them as really a base average team if a team is expected to win eight games that means they're going to win 50 percent of their games and we can apply that 50 percent directly to a neutral field price point they're going to be a pick them if a team has a 50 percent chance of winning they're a pick them they're priced to even money on the money line Kansas City, from that perspective, we can also put in at a price point as well. And they're one of the highest in the NFL. But if you just do the math and look at what price point they're set at at 10 and a half wins, and you were to run all the point spreads for the game using a three-point home field advantage for every team this week, uh, this Kansas City-Jacksonville game is the only game on the board where the difference between just directly taking the price point of each team and converting it to a point spread has a difference of more than one point. And the difference on this game was actually three and a half points. Um, and that's come down slightly with the movement, as you mentioned. But from a numbers perspective, the Kansas City Chiefs are the most overpriced team of week one in relationship to their preseason price points. So that's definitely the reason why this number has come down. Uh, a lot of people can make the argument that the Kansas City Chiefs should be anywhere from a pick em to a one-point favorite in this game. Uh, obviously, pick them applying for both. But um, at three and a half, I think we can continue to see this come down. Something that concerns me a little bit for Jacksonville, they had to deal with the hurricane, which fortunately for everyone in the North Florida and the Carolinas, looks like it's not nearly going to be as, as bad as anticipated. Uh, but they did cancel practice tuesday and wednesday so this team in preparation for one of the most dynamic offenses in the nfl sacrificed two days of preparation which looking back maybe they didn't have to do that so that's a little bit of a blow for the jacksonville preparation side there's a lot of familiarity these two teams did play a season ago blake Blake Bortles ended up costing Jacksonville that game, turning the ball over four times. But it was by far the worst performance of Patrick Mahomes' uh, season last year, which broke all of the records. The one team he struggled with was, was Jacksonville because the Jags can play very good press man defense on the outside against the speed of Kansas City. They also have Miles Jack in the middle of the field, who's one of the best covered linebackers who can match up directly with Travis Kelsey. They're also very good at containing quarterbacks within the pocket. We know Mahomes, when he gets out of the pocket, his passer rating gets significantly better. Uh, Jacksonville's a defense, very good at containing that and forcing him into situations he doesn't necessarily want to be in. Um, so this is really a game where there's going to be a lot of interest from betters in Kansas City. Um, but when you look at the numbers and what's happening on field, it really supports Jacksonville. And it's, it's a pretty clear uh, push and pull situation where a lot of the popular narrative and the talk is supporting Kansas City. But a lot of what really matters is pulling this price down on Jacksonville. Uh, you have to get three and a half if you take it. And if it gets to three, certainly no value there. Um, I'm a little bit concerned for making a bet just because of that lost preparation time, which I think is very important. But uh, a pretty clear reason behind this move down in favor of Jacksonville. Yeah, as you said, I think everyone listening will know that that Kansas City are incredibly strong on the offense and they're, they're below average on defense. And normally you'd kind of say that a poor defense could be made to get look good against the Jaguars. But I'd just be interested to know from your perspective, obviously they brought in Nick Foles and moving forward, how important do you think that will be for them? 
I don't know how much of an instant impact Foles will have. Obviously, anything is an upgrade from Blake Bortles. Uh, I, I don't think that needs to be really discussed at nauseum. But the, the big thing for me to watch with the Jags this year and really the determining factor of how successful this offense will be is how much freedom John Filippo has over this offense. Um, Doug Marone and Tom Coughlin are very traditional NFL guys. Doug Marone, the head coach. Tom Coughlin, the vice president of the team. Both of them are very adamant about running the football, being physical, uh, which doesn't necessarily benefit this Jags offense with a bit of a banged-up offensive line and Leonard Fournette in the backfield coming off of seasons with injury trouble. Um, what would really benefit them is spreading it out a little bit, getting letting Nick Foles get creative, um, scheming to his advantage, which is something John Filippo can do very well. Uh, last year in Minnesota, Filippo was let go because he was not willing to run the football frequently enough under Mike Zimmer. So we'll have to see how this plays out at the management level. Um, the playmakers for Jacksonville, quite limited uh, when you're looking at their wide receivers uh, as a whole. But DeFilippo's such a good offensive coordinator that he has the potential to scheme a lot of guys open and make this offense work. It's just a matter of how much freedom will he have. And that's will be determined over the first couple of weeks of the season. So then we got the the Cleveland Browns playing host to the Tennessee Titans, and the the traders seem to have got this one pretty much spot on, as the the market hasn't really moved much at all. The over under is stuck at forty five and a half, um, while Cleveland have moved from a five and a half point favorite to around a five point favorite. So, I'd, do you think is there anything there that the market's missing in this one? I I think the market is priced quite well. I I was interested to see this game not get to six. There's so much preseason hype on the Cleveland Browns. They're probably going to be the second most bet side of the week, just behind Kansas City. Um, Everybody wants to get a piece of Cleveland. But why I think that this price is staying pretty static is there's really not a lot of interest from any of the influential betters or any of the recreational betters as a whole in backing the Tennessee Titans. Um, Last year, they were probably one of the more overrated, overpriced teams in the NFL entering this season. There's more question marks than answers with the Tennessee Titans. Um, It's very difficult to bet into Marcus Mariota. Uh, It's very difficult to bet into this defense considering how much they overperformed. Um, It's extremely difficult to back anything with Arthur Smith as the offensive coordinator. That's really my biggest concern with this team. Um, He comes in as a first-time offensive coordinator. No one's really sure why. By far the least qualified offensive coordinator in the NFL, and it's not even close. Uh, Rumors to his dad being in charge of uh, the CEO of FedEx as a reason why he's still with this organization. Obviously very key in Nashville, but to put in perspective how rough this is for Tennessee, Arthur Smith is refusing to sit upstairs and watch this game from where offensive coordinators typically watch the game. He says he's more comfortable on the sidelines. So for a team that struggled making any in-game adjustments under their previous offensive coordinators, now their offensive coordinator isn't really in a position to do that watching from the sideline where we know it's notoriously difficult to get a full view of the game, which is why all the coordinators sit at the highest level possible to see everything. So not only are you getting a first-time play caller, a first-time OC implementing his first-ever playbook in an offense with a quarterback that's an enormous question mark and Marcus Mariota coming off a season where he had nerve issues in his arm, uh, you're having him on the sideline, which is probably the most uncomfortable spot for an OC to be. Uh, at the NFL level. So really not much interest for anyone in Tennessee. 
I think being able to set this price on Cleveland at five and a half was a job well done by the traders. Probably a liability building there in some sense, uh, a little bit of a dead zone at five and a half. But uh, my my take on it is if it hasn't gone to six yet, I'm not sure who's going to come in on Cleveland to drive that price up to six because uh, a lot of the influential betters in the industry right now are not going to want to touch Cleveland at such an enormous price point with such an enormous hype train and supporting narrative behind them. And just on this one, I guess, kind of zooming out again a little bit, there's there's a, a bit of a buzz around Baker Mayfield, given what he did last season and turned turned the Browns um, record round effectively. And obviously he's been joined by Odell Beckham Jr. Just be, do you think that people are over overestimating their potential impact in 2019 or are we really going to see a, a different Browns team altogether? It's, it's tough, and I, I've thought about it a lot, obviously, in the offseason. Um, it's a weird sort of intake from me looking at everything and trying to process all of the discussion about it. There's almost just a blanket sentiment that the, or the Browns are overpriced, regardless of doing any further analysis. People just jump to that conclusion, and they don't think anything further of it. But from a talent perspective... You look at Jarvis Landry, Odell Beckham Jr., David Njoku, Nick Chubb, Baker Mayfield. Um, they went and added Taewon Taylor, who came over from Tennessee, one of the fastest wide receivers in the league. Pretty good offensive line in front of them, which will probably be the the one spot where this could all crumble down. Uh, but this, this offensive roster, absolutely loaded with playmakers to the likes of something we really haven't seen in the past. Um, defensively, absolutely loaded up front too. So there's no shortage of talent, but there's no shortage of sentiment that the Browns are overpriced. So it's it's almost gone so far the other way that we might run the potential where this price point actually comes back. To begin the season, there's no question that they're they're overpriced. And I think that with all of these dynamic and large personalities within this roster, there's so much opportunity for something to blow up and go wrong and just bring everything down with it. Um, you look at Freddie Kitchens. He was calling out uh, management in the preseason who were apparently leaking rumors to the press saying that their their job is on the line and they're immediately fired. And so, I mean, Freddie Kitchens doesn't do this sort of combustible roster any favors with his coaching style. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see, but I think that there's a potential just with – how divisive this team is within the market that potentially the price point could swing back later in the season to a point where there's um, some value backing them. But but early in the season, I'm not going to be looking to play them for sure. So next up, we've got the LA Rams at the Carolina Panthers and the Rams have the edge according to the numbers and that there hasn't really been too much action to move the line that much at the moment. They're LA are now a two-point favourite after opening up at two and a half, and the early money was on the over at 51 points, but it's it's dropped to 50, and we're still seeing people keen on the under, so that one could actually drop a little bit further down. Now, I know you weren't really a fan of the Rams last year on our podcast, or, or at least a fan of how overhyped they were. They do look like a strong unit, and it could be games like this against the Panthers that will maybe prove the doubters wrong or maybe open up those those frailties that they have again. So what do you think is going to happen here? Uh, certainly there's going to be a lot of betting interest for the Rams from a lot of bettors this week. Um, I think from the influential side, we're looking at Carolina be bet for a lot of good reasons. And I guess we can start on field with what you just mentioned, Jared Goff. We certainly opposed him 
uh, in the Super Bowl, more so by taking the under. But but we looked against him a couple spots, citing how when there's pressure in his face, he becomes one of the worst quarterbacks in the league. And now he has to enter this season with the most inexperienced center, left guard, right guard combination in the NFL. So the interior of this Rams offensive line is among the weakest in the NFL, uh, looking at those three. So if there's going to be pressure against the Rams this season, it's coming right up the middle exactly where he doesn't like it. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. If there's one benefit going for the Rams, they have Sean McVay, who's brilliant at scheming away from that pressure. Uh, He's very good at getting the ball out of Goff's hands quickly, using play action, using his tight ends creatively to provide extra support and blocking, as well as the running back. I think he's going to change up his playbook a little bit. He's notorious for not showing anything in the preseason at all. I think he was really embarrassed in that Super Bowl effort where he admitted that he was outcoached immediately after. But looking back at some of the mic'd up film from that game, Uh, He was acknowledging a lot of what was happening on the New England defense immediately as it was happening early in the game and did nothing to adjust. Uh, They ran 11 personnel, uh, one running back, one tight end sets at an uh, astonishing rate uh, in the high 90 percent range. So I think to the end of the season, what we saw with the Bears and what we saw with the Patriots, uh, he became a little bit predictable and they sort of used the same formula to beat him. So I think this offseason, there's some adjustments being done that nobody's really going to expect. Not sure on the road at Carolina is where we're really going to see that realized. Uh, Carolina, as bad as their secondary is, they can get pressure in the middle of the offensive line where the Rams struggle. So that can certainly negate some of this offense. Uh, But also what the Carolina Panthers can do really well is negate the pressure that the Rams can bring. Obviously, the Rams defensive line, probably the best pass rush unit in the NFL. Um, But under Norv Turner, the big point of focus last season was on Cam Newton getting the ball out of his hand very quick, not only for his health, but also for his accuracy. Uh, He had one of the best completion rate numbers of his entire career in his first year under Norv Turner last season. This offseason, throughout training camp and the preseason, um, all the focus has been on Cam Newton. Quick passes, new compact throwing motion, getting the ball out of his hand quick. They've got Samuel and Moore, two very fast wide receivers on the outside. Christian McCaffrey, the most dynamic running back coming out of the backfield. Greg Olson on the injury report right now, but a very reliable tight end, probably going to end up playing for this game. So from an offensive game planning perspective, Carolina has all the weapons to negate that pass rush of the L.A. Rams. And that's why I think a lot of people are buying into this side. My concern with the side in this one is the Carolina secondary, which is probably going to be a bottom five unit this year. They match up extremely poor when stretched to nickel defense, um, matching up against the Rams, who have the only team in the NFL with three receivers who graded inside the top 30 at pro football focus a year ago. Um, That's going to benefit them enormously to be able to take advantage of this Panthers secondary. It's just a bad situational matchup for Carolina in terms of personnel. I really see some value here with the over currently priced to 49 and a half or a cheap 50. I think both of these teams are going to have a lot of success moving the football, uh, getting the ball out of both quarterbacks hands quite quickly, uh, efficient passing and, and take advantage of the secondary, which is the weak part for both defense. So if I had to look for something specific here, I'd be looking to the over on this one rather than picking the side. So now we've got the the Seattle Seahawks are playing host to the Cincinnati Bengals and we've seen a big move on Seattle after they opened up at 7.5 favourite and they've they've moved out to a a 10-point favourite on the handicap. And 
that's also seen the over-under creep up from 43.5 to 44, and, and betters seem to still be buying into the over. So there's obviously some big moves here in the market. So what do you make of that? And like we talked about with Baltimore-Miami, game state becomes very important when you're handicapping Cincinnati-Seattle. Seahawks were the only team a year ago to run the ball more than they passed. That's not going to decrease this year with the departure of Doug Baldwin and a couple other key playmakers. This team is going to be very physical. They're going to be very run-oriented. They've got three running backs deep on the depth chart. Um, That run percentage is only going to increase. Going up against Cincinnati, where that poses a little bit of issue, the only spot where Cincinnati is above average in any personnel situation is defending the run, specifically in their defensive front. So Seattle's going to be running the football against this defensive front, and they like to run and then take their deep shots um, later down, specific down in distances, but it's not like they do that consistently throughout the game. So they're going to have success when they take those shots, but if they're leading, playing, from ahead, they're going to be less inclined to do that. Um, I don't see this a game where Seattle is going to come out and just bury Cincinnati um, once they got up ahead, even if they're up by 17 points. I mean, you're still only a touchdown clear, and that's really going to get this team running the football even more, slow down the game, um, get out with a with a victory. So not only they're running into the strength of the Cincinnati defense, which is probably going to be a top 10 run-stopping unit in the NFL, very good defensive line for the Bengals. Um, but they're going to be doing it likely playing with the lead, which is only going to incline them to do it more. Um, where I would like to back Cincinnati, another one of those games where there's a very sort of clear advantage that plays in nicely uh, to potentially make a bet. But you look at Cincinnati, brand new head coach, brand new offense coordinator, brand new defensive coordinator, all first time in their roles. They were holding practices during training camp and preseason just for communication, practicing, getting comfortable using a headset to talk to each other on the sideline and get plays in and out to their quarterback inside the huddle because it's so new to them. They were having to put effort into learning that. And it was problematic throughout preseason where they were constantly having penalties, uh, able to not get, not able to get the plays in well, not able to do things frequently. The operation as a whole was very poor. Now they go to Seattle, which is the most difficult stadium to communicate in the entire NFL. What's that going to look like? What's it going to look like when they're quickly down seven, nothing in the first quarter and you're relying on Andy Dalton to make plays, but you can't, it's just, it's setting up to be a mess for Cincinnati. So from a point preds perspective, or even the total perspective, as much as I would sort of like to look to the underdog here, there's just a little bit too much uncertainty uh, for me to get excited about Cincinnati enough to make a wager. Next up, we've got Indianapolis Colts at the LA Chargers, and this is probably a game that would have flown under the radar a little bit had Andrew Luck obviously not made that shock retirement announcement. When the odds were initially posted, the Chargers were favoured by three points, and they've now moved out to a six and a half point favourite. And the over/under has also dropped from forty-eight to forty-five, and the under is actually still currently favoured by the market. So, a lot to kind of digest here. But what do you make of this? Yeah, so that obviously took everyone by surprise for about 20 minutes after the announcement rumored uh, came out. It was a preseason game, and there were some interviews and some speculation about it. The market was going crazy. This price jumped up, was immediately bet down. Um, I think that his value has sort of been realized here a, a little bit. What people may sort of misaccount for, and something I did somewhat foolishly was um, when you're looking at equating a point spread to Andrew Luck, you have to really consider, uh, first of all, the backup 
which is something I always talk about. And I have an article up on, on the pinnacle resources talking about that, but um, you have to account for which points the number moves through. So we have to consider that this game was sitting on chargers minus three, which has the highest margin of victory frequency of any number in the NFL. And it moved all the way to seven. And you might look at it and say, wow, Andrew Luck is worth a lot more than four points, but moving off of three and getting all the way to the seven it's about a 25% change in implied probability in terms of what the equivalent money line price is. So a very significant move and one that the market quickly disagreed with just because the Indianapolis Colts are have one of the better rosters in the AFC. The Chargers probably have the best all-around roster. Colts would be number three or number four within the AFC. A lot of depth within this team. Jacoby Brissett has been with the organization for a couple of years. I think the initial sort of snap narrative was to look at how he performed back when he took over for the season when Andrew Luck missed. That was a significantly different roster that had a lot worse personnel than what they have now. Everything was put in place to protect Andrew Luck, uh, to maximize his playmaking ability. And now Jacoby Brissett with a little bit of mobility, but also a ton of familiarity, played all of the preseason reps with the number one starters, uh, looked very good in doing so has a lot of continuity within the offense. Uh, I don't think they're going to miss too much of a step. Obviously, going down from luck to percent is a downgrade to some extent, but I think the market overall as a whole um, overreacted to this move just a little bit. Uh, defensively, nothing changes for the Colts. Still probably one of the more underrated defenses in the NFL. Uh, this can play certainly into the top four or five units in the AFC. So going up against the Chargers, um, that certainly impacts it as well. And what made this a little bit more difficult to sort of judge the movement was when you look at the L.A. Chargers playing in L.A., the smallest home field advantage in terms of a point spread impact in the NFL. So this game is extremely close to a neutral field site uh, in terms of the pricing perspective. So you can almost grade that move as a true move rather than having to sort of cushion it for home field advantage. So that certainly doesn't do the Chargers any benefit. At six and a half, I'm not particularly interested to go either way from this one with it being uh, already through the seven and coming back we're probably not going to see it go to seven again if anything we might see this come down off of six um, maybe get into the five and a half range sort of sit in that dead zone with how much love there is from the numbers and the analytics guys for the Indianapolis Colts um, so if anything this line is going to come back a little bit closer to where it started from Total sitting on the key number of 45. Don't really expect too much movement uh, from there. It was adjusted a little bit for luck as well, but it's probably going to sit right around 45 until kickoff. Yeah, and the charges there, you talk about home field advantage or lack of. I mean, that that really poor home record from last year, and it was the, I think the road record was 7-1 and one that kind of got them to the playoffs. So thinking again, more kind of long-term, how long are we going? How long is it going to take for for the Chargers to kind of accommodate to those new surroundings and really kind of perform well at home? Well, the soccer stadium environment or football for listeners abroad. Um, so switching up the footballs here, but I mean that's never going to be conducive to a good home field advantage. I think we sort of tend to falsely equate noise and sort of atmosphere into what the home field advantage is and it is to an extent because of the communication like we talked about with the cincinnati seattle situation last game but um you have to remember this is a team that moved from san diego the fan base for this team is in san diego la has sort of adopted the rams as their team so there's just there's not that support 
for the Chargers. And we've seen where cases like teams like Pittsburgh are traveling into L.A. and it becomes sort of a getaway for the Pittsburgh Steelers fans. And you're looking at the stadium and it's more um, yellow and black for the Pittsburgh Steelers than it is blue and gold for the L.A. Chargers. So I I don't know if it ever changes or improves. Um, Maybe if they get a Super Bowl title under their name, it'll draw a little bit more support. But they're really the second team in the city and, and in some cases the third team behind the USC Trojans or even the fourth team behind the LA Dodgers, which have a lot more interest uh, from the surrounding communities. So I'm not sure that that ever improves, but from a pricing standpoint, I think people will probably become more used to it. um, Not really applying the the required three points or sort of the standard three points and sort of tapering their expectations for home field towards sort of one, one and a half points, which is a more realistic thing. So I'm, I'm really more concerned from the pricing perspective. We're not there yet, but, it's getting close to where that's just commonly known within the market. So moving on to the San Francisco 49ers at the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, this seems like a game that the market can't really seem to make up their mind with. Um, the traders opened it up as a pick and after some moving around, the line is now kind of is on the 49ers as a, a minus one point favourite. And the bettors also seem keen on the over. It's nudged up from 49 to 50 and a half and it looks like it could be moving higher. So again, a, one where the market can't seem to make up its mind. What's your kind of thoughts on it? Yeah, I'd like to think maybe I had a little bit to do with that over. I'm pretty heavy on it at 49. Uh, reloaded a little bit at 49 and a half as well. Um, it'll be my biggest position of the opening week. Quite keen on the over. Um, I think from a point spread perspective, Tampa Bay, certainly the side you would want to look to. Um, but just from sort of taking a step back and look at this game as a whole, um, I have to go to sort of the over narrative and then I'll, I'll trickle down into the point spread from that. But, uh, the Buccaneers and their acquisition of Bruce Arians, Todd Bowles and Byron Leftwich as head coach, defensive coordinator and offensive coordinator, probably the best acquisition for an organization of a new coaching staff that I've experienced in my lifetime. Um, this is my 12th season betting on the NFL. Um, Certainly in those 12 years, um, this has been, in my opinion, the biggest acquisition for coaching staff. So that's enormous for Tampa Bay, Um, not only because of how much experience Bowles and Arians have, Bruce Arians being one of the most respected offensive minds in in, in football as a whole, um, but their philosophy that they bring to this team just benefits the personnel that are on the field. Bruce Arians, notorious for being one of the most aggressive play callers in the NFL, Todd Bowles, extremely aggressive too, with the Jets last year, had the highest blitz rate in the NFL. That's not unusual for him to do. Uh, getting to play with a, a, a good linebacking core and a front front line, we're not going to really see anything different. It's going to be super aggressive on the defensive side for the Buccaneers all season this year as well. Byron Leftwich, um, the least experienced by far of both guys. He started as a quarterback's coach in Arizona in 2017, has a relationship with Bruce Arians, but he's very much um, sort of the guy that can relate to the players, very much a player's coach. Uh, but he came out in this press conference as well. Bruce Arians' motto, no risk it, no biscuit. Uh, Byron Leftwich said this is he's, he's no risk it, no biscuit version two. Uh, so he has no problem maximizing players' strengths and taking shots. So just the overall sort of perception that has to come into this game is that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are going to be extremely aggressive in their approach, extremely aggressive in their play calling. And going up against the San Francisco 49ers, uh, a defense that plays a lot of cover three, relies on a four-man rush, sits in a zone defense at a high rate. That's going to open up those seam routes, those routes in the flat for Arizona to take or for Tampa Bay to take advantage of. 
Uh, it suits their personnel very well. They have um, Mike Evans, who's one of the best wide receivers in the NFL, a top three guy for sure. They have O.J. Howard, who instantly becomes the best tight end in the NFL with the retirement of Rob Gronkowski. Uh, but they also have Chris Godwin, um, who's a very good slot receiver, very good hands, uh, poses a lot of matchup issues as well. And then Brashad Perryman, who's one of the fastest wide receivers that not a lot of people pay attention to is the number two guy. So they've certainly got all the options for Jameis Winston to be put in a positive situation and excel against this 49ers defense that sits in that soft zone and relies on the four-man rush, which is certainly effective and will be this season. It opens up a lot of opportunity for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to move the ball quickly, put a little bit of tempo into the game, and then take shots downfield, which Bruce Arians loves to do. This is just the perfect matchup for Arians to coach into and get things rolling with with Byron Leftwich. From the 49ers perspective, Kyle Shanahan, again, one of the most respected offensive minds in the league right now, a bit more of a modern guy than Bruce Arians is. Um, but rather than focusing on those short passes and tempo, Shanahan's going to go with a little bit more patience against his Tampa Bay Buccaneers defense. Again, this is a secondary, much like the 49ers, that's going to be one of the worst units in the league. I have the trio of Hargrave, Stewart, and Davis ranked as one of the worst three cover cornerback cores in the NFL. Uh, Justin Evans, Jordan Whitehead, neither of them ranked in the top 45 of safeties last season, and now they're thrust into the starting spot. Uh, with Todd Bowles' willingness to bring that extra rusher on the blitz, that's going to open up a lot of opportunities for Jimmy G to either target um, Pettis, Kittle, Goodwin, so all three of those guys, top 50 receivers in the NFL. But what they're very good at is generating separation. Surprising to see for many that Pettis took the number one spot over a good one. Um, all three of these guys generated at least three yards of separation per route in 2018, which was enormous. Puts them all in the upper 10 percentile of the league. So this defense, this offense can generate a lot of space. That's all because of Kyle Shanahan's scheming. And against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers that plays very soft uh, in coverage, uh, that's certainly going to benefit them as well. Very good at running the football, too, with Breida coming out of the backfield. But then they also have Temin Coleman, who's one of the fastest runners. Kyle Shanahan loves to get his running backs involved out as receivers as well. That becomes a matchup issue um, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with Levante David focused on Kittle. That's going to open up some secondary and third-level guys for um, the San Francisco 49ers to take advantage of. So a very competitive, evenly matched situation here. Um, price points probably disrespecting what Tampa Bay can do just a little bit. Um, this probably should be more so one and a half, two points in favor of Tampa Bay. But I see significant value on the over to 49, 49 and a half. I project this one uh, anytime I run sort of any different play distribution to sort of get to my end total. I'm looking anywhere from 53 to 54 to 55 from a low to a high end range. Um, so 49 and even now at 50, there's certainly some value on the over in my opinion. And we'll move on to the Detroit Lions at the Arizona Cardinals. And we've just gone from one game where we said the traders couldn't seem to make up their mind or the market didn't know how to react to what was posted. And this is, it's kind of a similar situation here. There's another one that's posted as a pick em. Betters were quick to get on Detroit and have... And they've moved to a to a two-and-a-half-point favourite. The over-under has dropped and looks like it could continue to do so. It opened up at 49 and is now down to 47. Um, we've just gone from one where, as we said, the market didn't really know what to do. But you had 
some thoughts on and, and were quite big on big on a bet. So is that the same case here, or are you kind of in with the market? I, I think just looking at this, the bookmakers probably want to entice some Detroit action, just looking at how it's weighted two and a half sort of priced, minus 115, minus 120. Um, if there was enough sort of action that pushes one to three, likely already would have got there. Um, where it gets interesting, though, is you look at Arizona. Um, somehow there's the sort of sentiment around the team has changed quite a bit. There was a lot of doubt when they hired Cliff Kingsbury, there was a lot of doubt when they drafted Kyler Murray. Uh, and there's a lot of doubt with this air raid system as a whole. And that sort of carried into the initial points of training camp. But Kingsbury has been so well-spoken and Murray's looked decent enough in preseason that it's everyone's sort of tapered off the negativity with Arizona. And all of a sudden people are starting to point to potential spots of upside where I have my doubts with Arizona in this game specifically is anything that they're going to show in week one, they did not show in any games during the preseason. So you're thinking of a first time quarterback, make his first start first time NFL coach in his first game, obviously um, anything that they want to run with this air raid system was not showcased at all at game speed during the preseason. And you know that by, Kyler Murray huddling every single play he was on the field. And um, in conversations I was in, we were charting it, especially in the last game uh, where he was on the road at Minnesota and actually did quite well, but he was huddling every single time. And the air raid system that Kingsbury pushes as a whole is an up-tempo offense that runs from no huddle very frequently. They spread out their linemen. Uh, they spread out their receivers. And it it's actually designed to generate some successful running opportunities, but people think of it as this mad downfield passing attack. Some of the most common plays are just simple mesh routes across the middle designed to create space and easy throws for the quarterback. So it's not like we're going to see four verticals every single play and 50-yard attempts down the field with consistency. It's just going to be a faster-paced offense that relies on trying to generate open throws for Kyler Murray. But to see... Uh, a first-time head coach and a first-time quarterback as just a two-and-a-half-point home underdog in their first game against the Detroit Lions team that's getting very disrespected uh, is a, feels a little bit low to me. I think the three for Detroit is a much better number than two-and-a-half. It'll probably get there. I'm surprised it hasn't already. Um, but I think specifically for Detroit on offense, um, never mind what Arizona's going to do on defense, but without Patrick Peterson and then Robert Alford, who was hurt, Arizona is going to be going against this Detroit Lions passing attack without their number one and number two cornerbacks. In terms of a cluster injury, which is multiple injuries to key guys at the same position for a team, Arizona Cardinals have that worst issue uh, of any team in the league entering week one. Where they also have an injury issue is at center. And uh, the center in the offensive line, very important, especially to an offense like this where the line is going to play slightly wider another team's new system new communications going through coming in and out of the huddle looks like aq shipley is going to get the start over mason cole that's surprising because he only took 60 percent of reps with the number ones in preseason so now you have two cornerbacks that are hurt you have the key guy in the offensive line at center um, some uncertainty there first time head coach first time quarterback there's not much i can do to make a case for arizona so now we've got the New York Giants at the Dallas Cowboys, and this is another one where we've seen a little bit of movement on the over-under. It's dropped from 46.5 to 45. 
looking at the numbers, it could potentially go back the other way. Uh, the Cowboys are fancied by seven points, and they've actually lost half a point on the handicap after opening up at, at seven and a half. Now, the, the Giants' off- offensive numbers have been dropping year after year, and they've obviously lost a major asset in OBJ. The Cowboys are a solid defensive unit on the ground, but they struggle against the pass, and they don't really offer offer much when they do have the ball compared to the league average. So another difficult one to dissect. So how are you looking at this one? Well, so there's a couple of things we got to consider before we really dive in. And the big one is obviously Ezekiel Elliott. Now he's back with the team this morning after a 41-day holdout. He's going to be starting on Sunday. Some websites have him projected to be involved with 20 to 25 snaps. He spent most of August running on sand dunes in Cabo down in Mexico. How prepared that gets him for game speed, I'm not sure. Sort of to be determined in that regard. But he is going to be on the field with the team on Sunday against the New York Giants. So that's certainly, um, to most people, a big benefit for the Cowboys. And if we look at the line movement from this, this number did dip below seven. When he was announced, this went from six and a half up to seven. Now seven and a half um, trending that way. And it's it's a really difficult time to be sort of a new better in the NFL because everything on one side, which is sort of the, the great work that's being done in the analytics space and all of the new information coming out is saying that running backs are worth nothing at all to the betting market. In fact, they're worth nothing at all. Not I misspoke, not worth to the betting market, but not worth anything to the team or to the league as all. They're all replaceable. And then on the other side, you look at the betting market and the name value of running backs still affects the price. In this case, quite significantly, when six and a half goes to seven, it's not viewed as a big move, just half a point. But you have to consider what that number is. If this equates to about three and a half percent which if you're looking at a move from four, that would go to up to five and a half points. So really, depending on what sort of numbers you cross through with this move, you're looking at a pretty significant impact from a player that we're reading all of this information about as being overpriced, overpaid, non-impactful to his team, replacement level, bottom level guy. But you have to be able to differentiate what actually is innovative and what will have an impact on the game, and then what has an impact on the betting market. So a weird divide in that situation that I think a lot of bettors find themselves caught in and really questioning why this line moved if he doesn't matter. But within this system, he's such a key part of it in terms of the touches he gets and distribution of plays that go his way. Um, even though the offensive line is fantastic at blocking for him, you have to account for his presence in the game. And the market has done so and overreacted maybe to a little bit of an extent now that this has hit seven and a half. But Giants, certainly not without issues of their own. Uh, You're looking at the wide receiver depth chart. We mentioned cluster injuries with the Arizona Cardinals can certainly point to cluster injuries slash suspensions with the New York Giants at wide receiver. Um, They're going to be without their number one and two guys. Golden Tate suspended, so he's going to be out. Um, really waiting to see what happens with Sterling Shepard. He has a thumb injury listed as probable. Um, you also want to see what happens with Darius Slayton because the last thing you want in this situation is for Eli Manning to be against his Dallas Cowboys pass rush without anyone to throw to. And it's certainly looking like that might be the case. We can probably expect Sterling Shepard to, to step up and play in this game, um, but certainly limited options for the New York Giants. 
I think what sort of keeps this game very close to the number is just, again, the way that these two offenses go about what they do. I think it's going to be a conservative effort by both teams to keep the ball on the ground, even if Zeke is limited. If his performance is limited and he does end up getting those 20 touches, I mean, that certainly doesn't benefit the Cowboys. Um, Giants, of course, going to keep it on the ground with Barkley more often than not with all these injuries to their wide receivers. Evan Ingram at tight end is going to become that number one guy for Manning to throw to. Um, so that just makes this Giants offense more conservative as a whole. Um, if I had to look one side here, I'd be looking towards the under, uh, but probably not a point spread I would lay, not something I'd jump on for Dallas for sure. If anything, maybe look towards the Giants at seven and a half now that it's got there. I've got the Pittsburgh Steelers against the New England Patriots and the over-under kind of jumps out to me a little bit on this one. It has, it's dropped a point since it opened and it's currently set at 50.5, but betters do still, still seem keen to take the under. Um, in terms of the spread, New England opened up as a six-point favourite and they've dropped slightly to 5.5. To and, and I mean, the Patriots are the Patriots. I don't really, really know what else to say on that one. Their, their only real weakness seems to be against the run. So from a one, from a Steelers perspective and, and two season long how do teams go about beating the patriots well it's going to be very difficult to beat them but probably for different ways than people expect i think the new england patriots are going to do very well this year but mainly because of their defense i think that people are really underestimating how good this pittsburgh or the new england patriots pittsburgh steelers have a great defense too we'll get to in a sec Uh, but people are really underestimating how good this patriots defense is they play man coverage at the highest rate in the nfl Stefan Gilmar, arguably the best corner in the NFL. They've got the McCourty duo at safety in the other cornerback position. But then if they get stretched out in the nickel or any sub packages, they bring in J.C. Jackson, brilliant matchup corner. But now they've got just depth behind them anywhere you go, especially at linebacker, too. You look at Dante Hightower, Kyle Van Noy, Landon Roberts. There's a lot of depth on this defense. Jamie Collins in there as well. He gets lost in the shuffle. Um, this defense for the Pittsburgh, or the, I did it again, this defense for the New England Patriots, absolutely loaded. I want to talk about the Steelers. Clearly, we'll get into them. I think their defense, absolutely loaded too, and not a lot of people are looking at it. Um, one of the big things that they were missing for the last two seasons was that linebacker that can defend sideline to sideline. They moved up in the draft to get Devin Bush, one of the most athletic defensive players in the NFL, an absolute freak at the combine with his performance, but a brilliant sideline to sideline guy that really fills that void within the Steelers defense. You look down the depth chart, Joe Hayden, Cameron Hayward, Javon Hargrave, Stefan Tuitt, TJ Watt. This team can generate pressure. They can cover Bud Dupree, Mark Barron, Vince Williams, a great linebacking trio to go along with Bush and lead them in the right direction. Mike Hilton, um, really, really strong in coverage as well. So this defense is, is fantastic. Where this matchup gets really interesting, the totals come down, and rightfully so. I think the market was clearly underestimating the defenses and not pricing that in accordingly. Where this gets really interesting for the Patriots, um, you look at their offensive line. They had two guys from last year's Super Bowl team retired, and then just late last week, we found out that Andrews, the center, uh, one of the guys that's loved by Tom Brady, a key captain to this team the last couple of years, going to miss the rest of the season with a blood clot in his leg. So that now thrust Ted Karras into the center role last minute, a significant downgrade at a key position in an offensive line that's already missing two guys from last season that they have to look and find replacements for. Um, 
really something to keep an eye on because Brady, now that he's 42, we saw sort of a change in philosophy and how Belichick was calling plays last year, leaning a little bit more on the run, which is, I think, him going against a lot of what's in the league, but also protecting Tom Brady at 42 years old as well. And I think we're going to see that increase a little bit this year with Sony Michelle, James White, Rex Burkett all still on the roster, James Devlin in a fullback. But if this offensive line takes a step back, which they very well could, not only does that affect the run game, but where these guys are missing and where the new guys are coming in, right in the middle of the line, which is where Tom Brady and his mobility and his age and everything else, but also throughout his career, does not like pressure coming at him from straight ahead. So looking at the Pittsburgh Steelers and how they attack opposing offenses, I certainly see the upside in why people are backing the Pittsburgh Steelers at six, bringing this price down to five and a half. Certainly see why the total has come down as well. It all makes sense, all sort of falls in line. My only issue with the Steelers, you're backing Mike Tomlin on the road, against the New England Patriots. It's one of the biggest coaching mismatches in the NFL. Hard to get behind them in that situation. Tom Brady's never lost at home to the Pittsburgh Steelers in his career. It's awfully tough for Tomlin to get ahead and get that victory. So a little bit of hesitation there from the coaching mismatch. Uh, but the move certainly makes sense. Agree with both uh, considerably. So next up, we've got the Houston Texans at the New Orleans Saints. And this is one where the market seems to be in agreement with the pinnacle traders. The over-under has dropped slightly from 53.5 to 52.5, but it it looks to be close to bumping back up. And the Saints are, are on their current opening mark as a, a seven-point favourite. And if, I mean, if a team struggles against the past like the Texans do, one of the worst teams to come up against is one with Drew Brees at quarterback so is this a simple case of how many points do the Saints put on the board or is there more to it than that I I think the narrative will say that there's uh, a lot more to it than that and they'll point to the Houston Texans and their lack of offseason acquisitions to bolster the offensive line which had Marcus or um, which had I lost my name Deshaun Watson there we go we're getting this is going long here we're over an hour so fatigue is starting to set in Ben um it had Deshaun Watson riding a bus to a game last year because he was getting hit so much. Um, they made a couple key acquisitions late, which I think make this offensive line a little bit better than the market and the perception is pricing them out to be. Uh, but it all comes to keeping Watson up uh, and healthy in the pocket in order to take advantage of his weapons, which for the most part will be fully available to him. DeAndre Hopkins, um, Kiki Kute looks like he's going to play the addition of Kenny Stills from uh, the sort of destructive Miami environment. Going to give this offense a little bit of a different look, as well as Duke Johnson comes a little bit more of a dynamic receiving option in in the backfield. So, I mean, the Houston Texans have the offensive weapons to attack this New Orleans Saints defense. To get back to your question, which I veered off so very conveniently, does it become a matter of New Orleans scoring too many points for the Texans to keep up? Uh, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that or think so, just because of the pressure that this Houston Texans defense can generate on Drew Brees, um, J.J. Watt, Whitley Merciless, Zach Cunningham, a really good defensive front, even with the departure of Jadavian Clowney. Um, still think that this defense can generate pressure on Drew Brees, get through that offensive line of New Orleans. Tayshawn Gibson comes over from Jacksonville, some nice support to the secondary, which you mentioned, struggled a year ago. So I think that's a significant upgrade at safety. Um, for the Texans to rely on. Um, I don't really have too much of an opinion here on the total or the side. 
I think both, as you mentioned, were priced quite well. Traders uh, hit this one on the spot. So um, rather than really diving into it further, I think this is going to probably fall right around the number, both for the total and the point spread. Not too much to say about this one. And if fatigue's setting in, I think it sounds like the Pinnacle Podcast roster has, has skipped preseason and gone straight to the regular season. We're right into, we're right into game speed off the hop. There you go. So last but not least, so not much longer to go, we've got the Denver Broncos at the Oakland Raiders. And when this one was posted, it seemed like the Raiders had the advantage. They were listed as a two and a half point favourite. However, since then, we've seen the market move on Denver and it's pushed it the other way. And they're now favoured by one point. There's also been some minor movement on the over under from 43 to 43 and a half. So again, this one's kind of flip flopping everywhere. What do you make of this? I I really, I've, this is the one game of the week where it's at the bottom of the board. I knew when I saw the initial opening number, I had no interest in betting it. Um, the move in itself, um, going from three to one, it's a pretty significant move, but it's not going to take much to move against the Oakland Raiders this entire season. Uh, they come in, not only is their price point a bit out of whack, but also the perception with them being on hard knocks creates a little bit more excitement about them. Um, the addition of Antonio Brown, Tyrell Williams, uh, some offensive pieces that people are going to get excited about too. Um, but it's very difficult for any serious better to make a case for the Oakland Raiders really at any point this season. Um, defensively, the secondary is a nightmare. Um, offensively, it's just a disaster waiting to happen. It's a quarterback in Derek Carr who doesn't provide much leadership going up against this Denver Broncos defense. This is really a defense that can can challenge them man-on-man, um, can match up with Antonio Brown, provide some support. But then without a really a strong supporting cast for Oakland to throw at the Broncos, who play this high rate of man defense, uh, there's really not much for Derek Carr to look through. And it's going to be a matter of how quickly he can get the ball out of his hand to negate this Denver Broncos pass rush. But I'm not sure how Jake or John Gruden is going to really scheme any of these players into position against this Denver Broncos defense, which is now under control of Vic Fangio. We all know what he did in Chicago a year ago. We've seen that um, sort of apply throughout the Denver Broncos preseason and training cap defense very much buying into his system. Uh, I don't think this is a difficult game for him to game plan against, considering what he has on the roster. With no real point spread to cover the lack of Broncos offense that we saw throughout training camp and the preseason, as well as just sort of speculation about what this roster is going to lack, really, really doesn't become much of an issue to overcome when you're not looking at laying points against the Oakland Raiders. So it really becomes a matter of, can Joe Flacco find some sort of common ground with his receivers? All the pieces are there. Corton Sutton, Emmanuel Sanders, Tim Patrick, Deshaun Hamilton. Like those are four guys that get very much disrespected when you're talking about best receiver units in the NFL. And maybe best is too strong of an adjective, but I mean, this is a receiving group that can certainly do damage over the course of the season. Offensive line, for the most part, is going to play to an average unit within the league. So the Raiders, who lack any sort of pass rush whatsoever, were to generate the least amount of pressure, the least amount of sacks a year ago, did nothing to improve their defense on that perspective, aside from adding Vontez Perfect, who's a, a walking penalty flag on that defensive side. Um, they're certainly not going to benefit them. But if they can't get pressure, Flacco's comfortable. He has options to look to benefits this Broncos defense not again I see value in the number of the total it's just to stay away from me but uh, again another move that just makes sense um, but just not one I want to get involved with 
Well, that's it. That's the full slate of games. We powered through the hour with some great insight from the odds analysis to the tactical matchups. I think no matter what games people are looking to bet on, there's something in there for everyone. So thanks again for coming on, and I'm really looking forward to next week. We'll talk to you Sunday evening when the openers come out and hit the board and get everyone set up for week two of the NFL. We're rolling. And thanks to everyone for listening. I hope week one of the NFL season is worth the wait. You can, of course, get all the lines on pinnacle.com. Best of luck with your bets. And as always, please gamble responsibly. 